from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Jay Tyson on April 6, 2020. Jay is an author of the historical novel The Wise Men of the West, A Search for the Promised One in the Latter Days. This is a two-volume work. The story takes place during the Millennial Movement when William Miller was proclaiming that the return of Christ was to occur in 1844. The two main characters in the novel realize that the event was not to take place in the West but in the East, and the story chronicles their realization and pursuit, what they finally discover, and what they must do once they make their discovery. Jay reads an excerpt in the interview. I started the interview by asking Jay where he grew up, and what was spiritual life like growing up. I grew up in a suburb outside of Detroit, Michigan. I regularly attended the Presbyterian Church with my parents and my three brothers. But even as a kid, I always wondered why God had spoken to us through the series of great messengers that we learn of in our Bible studies, Noah, the story of Abraham and Moses, and then Jesus. And yet something seemed to have stopped about 2,000 years ago because we haven't heard from him in a long time. So it was with those thoughts that when I was in high school, I heard that there was a religion that believed that there was more to the story, some things that I had missed. It seemed clear enough to me that the West had missed Islam. I knew that much by the time I was in high school. But these people taught that most of the world had also missed a more recent outpouring of divine wisdom, which had begun in a far-off land in the year 1844. I also learned that there was a widespread movement in our own country anticipating the return of Christ in that very same year. This took place especially in the northeastern parts of the U.S. and parts of Europe, many people could see that the time was ripe for the next appearance of Christ. It was referred to as the Great Awakening. You probably know that Joseph Smith of Palmyra, New York, at that time started the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons, started that in the 1830s with a firm conviction that they were living in the latter days a term that's used often in the Bible, and they felt that the latter days had arrived. There was another leader of the Great Awakening, as it was called, a self-taught preacher by the name of William Miller, who lived in New York State near the Vermont border, just south of Lake Champlain. And as I was preparing for this, I noticed that uh, you're there in Northampton, so this is only about 100 miles from where you are. As a self-taught preacher, he unlocked the meanings of some of the prophecies of Daniel 
prophecies that Jesus himself had cited in holding the key to understanding the date of his return. For myself, what led me to the Baha'i faith was a recognition that there are many mansions of religion that are all encompassed within God's great house, just as Jesus himself had said. You might recall that from John 14, verse 2. Was it someone at school? How was it that you found out about the Baha'i faith? Well, interestingly enough, my Presbyterian minister felt that we should know about other religions. He had us attend a um, Catholic service, Jewish synagogue. We went to the Greek Orthodox service. We even went to the Detroit Islamic Center. And it so happened that in line with this, he invited a Baha'i to come in and speak. The Baha'is in the area had written to the ministers and uh, offered a speaker to come in. So he invited a Baha'i to come in and speak. The theme that all of the messengers came from the same divine source attracted me. Mm. So I started uh, attending what Baha'is call firesides, meetings to explain and answer questions. And after attending those for, I think it was about five, six months, I decided that this was indeed what it claimed to be. Now, what were your parents' reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? <laughs> well, you know, you have to understand that um, in the early 1970s or late 1960s, if a young person came home and said that he was interested in a religion that believed that uh, you can't drink alcohol, you shouldn't uh, take drugs, and there should be no sex before marriage, any parent should be happy. <laughs> so they did not have an extremely negative reaction. I didn't really have any significant problems in that regard. Mm -hmm. It seems like your minister, your Presbyterian minister, was very open-minded to do something like that. He was indeed, yes. And when I explained to him afterwards about uh, that I was joining the Baha'i faith, he said that, he had heard enough about it to know that it was a very open religion and accepted the truth from several sources. So he wished me well. I was very pleased at his response. Mm. I'm speaking with Jay Tyson, author of The Wise Men of the West, A Search for the Promised One in the Latter Days. Now, Jay, I understand this is a first volume of a two-volume set. First That's volume has been published. So why don't you tell me what the book is about? So one of the things that I learned as I was becoming a Baha'i was that there was a preacher, William Miller, who predicted that Christ would return in the year 1844. I was particularly interested in because, as it turns out, that is the exact same year that the Baha'i faith began. I've always had this kind of interest in learning more about William Miller and his teachings. And I took the opportunity in 2012 to stop by and visit the William Miller farm there in Lowhampton, New York. I learned firsthand from the Seventh-day Adventists who were the caretakers there, the amazing story of this man and the inspirations that led him to his remarkable conclusions. 
However, it also became clear that as much as these people knew about the 1840s in America, they knew really nothing about the parallel religious inspirations that were taking place at the same time in other parts of the world. So a few months later, I was heading back to New Jersey from my family home in Michigan, where I had just sold the house because my mother had moved into an assisted living facility. And I was reflecting on my visit with the Adventists as I was driving down the interstate. It occurred to me that it might be possible to write a story about a traveler who understands Mr. Miller's predictions, but who thinks they will be fulfilled in the Holy Land. So this traveler would be willing to make the journey there. And it was a funny thing because, you know, it could have been one of those temporary thoughts which comes to mind but soon flits away, except for one thing that happened. Within a couple of minutes of thinking of this idea of writing the story, the rental truck that I was driving started to shake violently. Hmm. I had no idea what was wrong, so I pulled over to the shoulder and I called the rental company. They sent a tow truck and took me to a nearby mechanic who diagnosed the problem and told me the required replacement parts could not arrive any sooner than the following morning. So suddenly, I had nothing to do for the next 24 hours, and all I had was a pad of paper and my pencil and my thoughts. So I started to sketch out the broad outline for this story, and that was almost seven years ago. So it's been a long journey to get to this point. The title of the book is says, The Wise Men of the West. Now, what's the significance of that title? Yeah, so that is a reference to, of course, the story of the Magi, the Christmas story, the wise men of the East. They were inspired by prophecies from the prophet Zoroaster. You know, the wise men of the East were religious men from the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire believed in the religion of Zoroaster and if you check back, you find that Zoroaster had predicted that messengers would come, future messengers would come, about once every thousand years. And he lived approximately a thousand years before Jesus. So there were some prophecies that inspired the, the wise men of the East to come searching at that time. And so my story is in some sense a mirror image of that. We have prophecies, actually, from the time of Jesus about what to look for, what to expect. And this has motivated my two characters from the West to head eastward to search in this age. Mm. So that's uh, where we draw the title of the book from. My story tends to focus more on William Miller and his teachings as he was more particularly focused on figuring out the exact time that Christ should return. I did want to mention that it is what we call a historical fiction. It's about 90% history and about 10% fiction. For people who are not familiar with historical fiction, you can think of the movie Titanic, which is, of course, a fictional story about Jack and Rose, but it is set 
in the historic perspective of an event that really occurred, the sinking of the Titanic. So in the same way that that gives you a front row seat on a historic event, my book tries to provide people with a front row seat on the thinkings, the ideas that were going on in this time period, not just in the United States, but among various groups across not only the Christian denominations, but as they move further east, they learn about other denominations and what their understandings are. And James Michener was similar in that vein, in the way he wrote historical novels. Yes, that's true. Yeah, that is true. He wrote a number of books that were an exploration of history of particular areas. He would focus on a particular area and go into depth on that area. Mine is a little bit more focused on a particular time period Mm -hmm. across a relatively wide geographic spectrum. Because my travelers are traveling from the United States. The lead character, Zach, finds a companion in Britain who is very familiar with the Middle East. He's an Orientalist, so he's quite helpful. And the two of them together travel to the Holy Land. So I'm speaking with Jay Tyson, and we're talking about his book, The Wise Men of the West, A Search for the Promised One in the Latter Days. As you had mentioned, the Seventh-day Adventists, their faith originates from William Miller. So when the prediction that William Miller had made had not apparently been fulfilled from their perspective, assuming it was going to happen in the U.S., how did the Seventh-day Adventists then come into being? Well, this is a very interesting point because, as I describe in the book, finding a promised one requires solving three problems. One problem is when, the other problem is where, and the third problem is how. So William Miller did an excellent job in figuring out the when portion The how portion is more difficult, and the reason that it's more difficult is because there are different passages in the Bible which can be understood in different ways. So, for instance, when the Bible talks about Christ returning through the clouds, many people understood those to be physical clouds. So they assumed that Christ must be somewhere up in the sky and coming down through physical clouds. But as you mentioned, you know, the year 1844 came and went. Christ did not return through the physical clouds as expected. Everybody called it the Great Disappointment. In fact, you can look that up today on Wikipedia and it's still known as the Great Disappointment because so many people were disappointed when nothing happened. The Adventist movement tried to recalculate the date, and they've tried many times, they and and others, there were a number of different Adventist churches that sprung from William Miller's teachings. But no matter how many times they've adjusted the date and expect, you know, had additional expectations, we all know that Christ has not descended from the physical sky. And yet, at the same time, 
other signs associated with his return have appeared. You know, the most notable of these signs is that after nearly 2,000 years, the Jewish people have returned to the Holy Land. That was prophesied as long ago as Moses and other Old Testament prophets as well spoke about a time when the Jewish people would be scattered to all nations. But they also spoke about a time that after that, they would be gathered together once again in the Holy Land. And so against all possible odds, this disparate group of people scattered around the world, mostly living in poor ghettos, somehow came together and over the course of two centuries has formed a nation in the Holy Land. So that stands out as probably the clearest evidence that the prophecies of the Old Testament have been fulfilled. But the question that both the Jewish people and the Christian people have is that Christ or the Messiah, in the case of the Jews, Jews talk about the coming of the Messiah, that is always associated with the return of the Jewish people to the Holy Land. So where is he? Seems to be missing. And that's what my story is about. In my story, the lead character, Zach, his, his father is aging, and his father actually passes away in the, near the beginning of the story. But his father has taught that the question of how the promised one will return should not be interpreted physically. And he makes this argument based on the teachings of a historic character who lived at that time. His name was the Reverend George Bush not associated particularly with the later presidents by the same name. But Reverend Bush had strong evidence from the earliest translations of the Bible that it was Christ's spirit and not his body that was intended in the biblical accounts of his resurrection. So that was something that in my story, Josiah Thompson understands it led him to his understanding of how Christ would return, that he would come not down from the clouds, but rather much as he appeared the first time as a child, seemingly normal, but with innate knowledge, knowing things that had never been taught to him. Something like Jesus, he would descend through the clouds of man's spiritual misunderstandings but not through physical clouds. My characters are traveling to the Holy Land because they're looking for someone who is known to have innate knowledge and is about to begin a series of teachings. Which is consistent with even Jesus' example of fulfilling prophecy, because when his disciples said that Elijah was supposed to return, in order to fulfill the promise of Jesus being the, the coming of the Messiah, he said that John the Baptist was Elijah. That's so, exactly true. And that yeah. really gives a very powerful indication of the meaning of the return. Mm -hmm. You know, Elijah was a prophet who was, according to the Old Testament, he was swept up into the sky by a whirlwind. And so the Jewish people naturally expected that he would be coming down from the sky. And 
when they saw John the Baptist and they saw Jesus, they said, look, this, these people didn't descend from the sky. They were born. We know that uh, his mother was Elizabeth and Jesus's mother was Mary. So clearly this could not be the return of Elijah. But Jesus explained that it's not a question of a return of a physical body. It's the question of the return of the same spirit. And we really need to take that into account when we're looking for the promised one. So my characters have taken that into account, and that's why they are not simply waiting for something to happen in the sky, but are traveling to the Holy Land. There they search. There they ask lots of people, and they don't find anyone who knows of any child that was born with innate knowledge. However, they do discover three interesting things. First of all, they discover that many Jews have already gathered in the Holy Land due to their own expectations of the coming of the Messiah in that same time period. And this is historically the case. The second thing, to their utter amazement, is that they find that a part of the Muslim community is also expecting their promised one to return based on an entire different set of prophecies from the Muslim religion that are more than a thousand years old. And in spite of the fact that they have these thousand year old prophecies, yet the year that is predicted is the very same year as the one that the Christians are expecting the return to occur, 1844. And then the third thing that they discover is that all three religions have indications that the search should be done in the land to the east and quite possibly in the land of Persia, the land from which the wise men of the east had come and also the land where the prophet Daniel had seen his visions that led to the prophecies that they're following up on. So although the first part of my story, you know, it's entitled, the first volume is entitled The West because it explores what people in America and Europe, including the Catholics and the Greek Orthodox and in the Holy Land, what they were thinking, that's the West. But then they decide to head further east. And in that search, they are learning more about the Zoroastrian tradition, the Buddhist tradition, the Hindu traditions, and all of them seem to have prophecies that converge on the mid-1800s and the land of Persia. I'm speaking with Jay Tyson, author of the book, The Wise Men of the West, A Search for the Promised One in the Latter Days. And you said this first volume really focused on the folks in the West who were caught up in the millennial movement and William Miller, who Mm -hmm. did an accurate calculation from biblical scripture of 1844 being the date of the return. And then, of course, the great disappointment. What's the title of the second volume? The second volume is basically the same title, although it's subtitled The East. In that one... I should say, get to a conclusion which is at least as successful as the wise men of the East were. So then the question becomes equally important, when they return to Britain and America, how will their friends and families take this news? 
And more importantly, how would William Miller himself understand a radically different, much larger view of the fulfillment of the Bible's prophecies? So that's kind of a second conclusion. Not, not only their discovery, but how it's going to be received in the West is uh, certainly a part of the discussion. Now, when is your second volume due to be released? Actually, the second volume, uh, we're very close to publishing it right now. It will probably come out later this month. So anyone buying the first volume, by the time you're finished reading that, I think the second volume will almost certainly be available. And Jay, would you like to read an excerpt? Yeah, I did pull out something that might be of interest. This is from the period Zach, the American, has made contact with a fellow in Britain who is interested in the idea of the search, but it turns out that he's too old to be traveling to the Holy Land. He proposes a, uh, a younger fellow he, who he knows who has a similar interest, and the younger fellow's name is James. And James is an Orientalist. He is uh, knowledgeable. In fact, he's spent some years previously living in Egypt. England, you know, uh, ruled Egypt during the early uh, 1800s. So he seems like an excellent candidate for traveling to the Holy Land. But he's a little bit reluctant to make such a commitment. So let me read what I've written here. He, that is James, thought of the students who were planning to hear him teach he thought of the research work he hoped to accomplish during the coming year, and he thought of his friends who expected him to be around to help them. He thought also of his home and repairs which needed to be tended to. His mind started to fill with the practical implications of such an absence. Finally, he said, I don't know, Zach. There is so much going on in my life. I really can't afford to take a year off to pursue this as exciting as it is. Zach was crestfallen. He felt that James was missing the big picture. He paused for a moment as a thought came to his mind, and then he asked, James, how long ago did your family convert to Christianity? James thought it was a rather odd question, but he answered, well, I don't have a documented family history that stretches back that far, but I like to think that some of them were among the converts when the early missionaries first reached these shores around the year 600 AD. Why? Zach replied, so at least some branches of your family have been practicing Christianity for more than 1,200 years, I suppose. Yes, very likely, but why do you ask? Doing some quick calculations, Zach continued, that is to say, perhaps about 40 generations for parts of your family. Yes, possibly 50. Generations were often shorter in those ages, replied James. So how many of them heard the stories of Christ's promise to return? Well, I suppose everyone. It's always been a significant part of the Christian message. And how many of them thought about how wonderful it would be to live in the age when Christ would return. How many longed to live in this age in which we find ourselves? And how many would have given everything to live in this age? 
I suppose most of them, sighed James, beginning to realize where Zack's line of reasoning was going. Precisely, said Zack. I have a sense that it is not only my father who is watching over me, guiding me on this journey. I have a sense that all of my ancestors, at least everyone who ever longed to see this day, is watching. To me, giving up a year or two to pursue this may seem like a big thing, but they are all exclaiming, throw such cares away. The promised day has come. Now is the day to act. Fail not to seize so priceless an opportunity. When we hear their calls, how can we sit back and do nothing? And how shall we answer them when we join them in the greater kingdom? Zach paused briefly, and then he continued. When you were a child, did you ever wish that you might have the chance to witness Christ's return? Did you ever pray and ask God that you might see it? James looked startled, saying, how did you know that? Don't be so surprised, continued Zach. Most of us have done the same. When I ask those questions of Millerite followers in America, most tell me, yes, they have carried such a wish or that prayer in their hearts from their childhood. And so if you ask God to open a door and now the door stands wide open before you, will you fail to go through it? Will you say, thank you, dear Lord, for answering my prayers, but now I will choose to ignore your answer? James thought for a while. He thought back to his childhood and remembered hearing the lessons about Christ's return. How much simpler life seemed back then. How much easier it would have been to let go of everything. And the words of Jesus came to him, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a child, he shall not enter therein. Tears started to well in his eyes. As he thought of all the cares that he carried, like large bags weighing him down, the words of the gospel came to him again, saying, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Perhaps he needed to let go of some of these things to enter God's kingdom. And then the scene from Matthew came to his mind in which one of Jesus' disciples asked to be excused so that he might go and bury his father who had just died. Jesus replied, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Jesus seemed to be saying that those who were spiritually alive should not let themselves be distracted by the cares of the material world, especially when the call of the Messiah was at hand. And so, with these thoughts in mind, James realized that the only reasonable response was to go. Zach's arguments and the lessons from the gospel were overwhelming. So he smiled slightly and simply said, when shall we leave? So I've been speaking with Jay Tyson, 
and he just read an excerpt from his book, The Wise Men of the West, A Search for the Promised One in the Latter Days. And he had just read an excerpt from that. And we spent the hour here with Jay describing the book to us. And hopefully people found it interesting and will want to read the book. Jay, where can people find your book? For anyone who wants to purchase the book, it uh, typically sells for like 19 or $20. I have noticed recently on Amazon, they seem to have a shortage. So somehow the price has gone up there to 40 or $50, which is a little bit strange, but it's available at pretty much the list price on uh, Barnes & Noble or Walmart on their websites. So if you, if you find that the price on Amazon is temporarily inflated, you can go to some of the other sites and pick it up there. But I thought I might simply end with the lines from the close of my introduction. It says, So come, let us join our explorers now on their two-year saga in search of the promised one to learn of their discoveries, which can transform the present cacophony of human religious experience into the most marvelous melodies and the most heavenly harmonies the world has ever known. Thank you, Jay, very much for talking to us and sharing your work with us. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jay Tyson, author of the historical novel, The Wise Men of the West, A Search for the Promised One in the Latter Days. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
spoke saying we would now ask of death and he said you would know the secret of death but how shall you find it unless you seek it in the heart of life the owl whose nightbound eyes are blind unto the day cannot unveil the mystery of light if you would indeed behold the spirit of death open your heart wide unto the body of life for life and death are one even as the river and the sea are one in the depth of your hopes and desires lies your silent knowledge of the beyond. 
And like seeds dreaming beneath the snow, your hot dreams of spring, trust the dreams, for in them is hidden the gate to eternity. Your fear of death is but the trembling of the shepherd who stands before the king, whose hand is to be laid upon him in honor. Is the shepherd not joyful beneath his trembling, that he shall wear the mark of the king? Yet is he not more mindful of his trembling? For what is it to die but to stand naked before the wind and to melt into the sun? And what is it to cease breathing but to free the breath from its restless tides, that it may rise and expand and seek God unencumbered? Only when you drink of the river of silence shall you indeed sing. And when you have reached the mountaintop, then you shall begin to climb. And when the earth shall claim your limbs, then, and only then, shall you truly dance. I have my death, messenger of joy to thee. Wherefore dost thou grieve? And I made the light to shed on thee its splendor. Why dost thou veil thyself therefrom? Why dost thou veil thyself? I have made death a messenger of joy to thee. Shed on thee its splendor Why dost thou veil thyself therefrom? Why dost thou veil thyself? Why dost thou veil thyself therefrom? Why dost thou veil thyself?
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.